Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for January 31st, 2024. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Pam Rhodes and Patty Daniels. Here's our first story from the front page of the QC Times. Trump remains on Illinois ballot. Former President Donald Trump will remain on the Illinois primary ballot, at least for now, as the State Board of Elections ruled unanimously Tuesday that a decision to remove him was not for the board, but instead for the courts to make. The ruling by the bipartisan panel is in line with the recommendation of hearing officer Clark Erickson, a retired Republican judge from Kankakee, who found by a preponderance of the evidence that President Trump engaged in insurrection. But the State Board of Elections was not the proper venue for constitutional analysis. All in all, attempting to resolve a constitutional issue within the expedited schedule of an election board hearing is somewhat akin to scheduling a two-minute round between a heavyweight, bo heavyweight boxers in a telephone booth, Erickson wrote in his non-binding opinion. The board, an eight-member body composed equally of Democrats and Republicans, agreed with this assessment, though some shared Erickson's belief that Trump was ultimately guilty of inciting insurrection. I wanted to be clear that this Republican believes that there was an insurrection on January 6th, said the board member, Catherine McCrory. There's no doubt in my mind that he manipulated, instigated, aided and abetted an insurrection of January 6th. However, having said that, it is not my place to rule on that today. Jack Vrett, another Republican member of the board, said the board would be inviting a floodgate of litigation if it ruled in the constitutional issue instead of sticking to its more typical purview, ensuring candidates nominating petitions are in good order. There was wisdom, I believe, in the legislature when they created the election code and said what our authority was and what our authority wasn't, Brett said. Trump attorney Adam Merrill agreed with the interpretation that the board did not have authority to wade into constitutional issues, though he maintained Trump did not participate in the January 6th insurrection an event that has resulted in criminal charges for more than 1,200 people. Mr. Trump did not engage in insurrection, as that term gets used in the Constitution, Merrill said. Trump responded favorably to the board's decision, thanking them in a post on his Truth Social, so social Media website for ruling 8-0 to zero and protecting the citizens of our country from the radical left lunatics who are trying to destroy it. The objection was filed by five Illinois voters and backed by a national group seeking to remove Trump's name from the ballot in several states on the grounds that the former president is ineligible to hold office under the 14th Amendment. The amendment prohibits those who have engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding public office. It was enacted following the Civil War to prevent senior Confederate officials from returning to office in Washington. Trump was tossed from the ballot in Colorado after the state Supreme Court ruled 4-3 in December that he was ineligible under the so-called Insurrection Clause. Soon after, Maine Secretary of State struck Trump from the state's ballot using similar reasoning. 
Those decisions have been put on hold pending review from the U.S. Supreme Court, which is scheduled to hear oral arguments on February 8, the same day early voting begins across Illinois. Matthew Pierce, attorney for the objectors, told Republican in Chicago his clients were disappointed in the board's ruling, calling it an avoidance of a hot potato issue. He said they would soon file an appeal of the ruling in Cook County Circuit Court, though the case may soon end up at the Illinois Supreme Court absent earlier resolution from the nation's high court. I'm pretty confident that whatever happens on appeal, this ruling is not going to stand, Pierce said. What the ultimate outcome will be, we shall see. Board of Elections spokesman Matt Dietrich confirmed that objectors have five days to file notice of their intent to seek judicial review in the case. Besides Colorado and Maine, no other state has disqualified Trump on the 14th Amendment grounds. Challenges have been filed in nearly three dozen states. They have been dismissed or rejected in 17 states, according to the New York Times. Meanwhile, the State Board of Elections dismissed three separate challenges to President Joe Biden's candidacy. One sought Biden's removal because he used an out-of-state notary for his nominating papers, which is permitted under law. Another challenged Biden on the 14th Amendment grounds for allegedly giving aid and comfort to enemies of the United States, but the only examples objectors provided were mere policy disagreements. A third objection was dismissed because objectors failed to show up to the hearing. Illinois' primary election will be held March 19. The first day for early voting and vote by mail is February 8. This is Lee Enterprises' Kelly Foy who contributed to this report. Thank you, Pam. Work planned at Government Bridge. The planned traffic circle at 2nd and Leclerc uh, streets at the foot of the government bridge is what is involved. Bridge to close for four months to construct a roundabout, written for us by Sarah Watson. In an effort to alleviate traffic uh, issues at the foot of government bridge in Davenport, Rock Island Arsenal is planning to build a traffic circle. The construction will close the bridge for four months from mid-March to mid-July, said Donald Wren, the Rock Island Arsenal's Director of Public Affairs. The bridge closure is scheduled from March 18th to July 18th, Wren said. The bridge will be closed to motorists but will remain open for bikers and pedestrians. Currently, the three-way intersection has stop signs and concrete barriers. The barriers and signs prevent left turns onto Government Bridge from Leclerc Street and separate turning lanes for motorists driving east on 2nd Street, taking them either to the bridge or onto Leclerc. And under the plans provided by the arsenal, Motorists will be able to exit the roundabout onto any street in the three-way intersection. Red said the project's goal is to make turns less complicated in the intersection and make it easier for two tall trucks in the wrong lane to avoid getting stuck at the mouth of the bridge, which has an 11-foot clearance. 
Red said to his understanding, trucks have had to back up or block lanes of traffic in order to exit the intersection when the driver realizes they can't make the low clearance. The traffic circle to be paid for by the federal government will cost about $985,000, Rand said. The 1896 government bridge connects downtown Davenport with the Arsenal and Rock Island and is frequently used by commuters, motorists, pedestrians, and bikers. The closest bridge spanning the Mississippi River to the government bridge are I-74 connecting Bettendorf and Moline and the Centennial Bridge, which connects western downtown Davenport and western downtown Rock Island. Roundabouts reduce crash fatalities by 90% and serious injuries by 76%, according to studies by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. And then there's a short article here, Ross Restaurant Closing, Final Day Announced for Bettendorf Staple, written for us by Gretchen Teske. Quad citizens only have so many days to get their last Magic Mountain at Ross's Restaurant before the beloved Staple, now on Falcon Drive, closes. The final day of business will be February 12th, as announced in the restaurant's Facebook page. We would like to sincerely thank the millions of customers who have visited us over the years. Some of you are a part of our daily routine, and we will miss you all dearly, the post said. While it is true that we have hosted quite a few celebrities or the aspiring politician looking for a photo op, dear customers, you all are the true MVPs. Please know how much you have meant to our family and staff over the years. The bad news has been brewing for a while, with owners Ron and Cynthia Freidhoff announcing in October that they would be retiring from the business and selling the building. The following month, Cynthia died at home at the age of 72. In honor and memory of Cynthia's father and the original owner, Harold Ross, the restaurant will offer customer appreciation specials as the weeks wind down. The building is still for sale or lease, and the family is hopeful a new business takes its place. Our family is still coping with the loss of our dear Cynthia, who was truly the heart of the business, the Post read. But it's not all bad news. This may be the end of the chapter, but not the end of the story. We will open some classic Ross's locations within the next few years, the Post read. It's not goodbye, it's see you later. Lieutenant Launches Sheriff Bid Thomas Gibbs, a lieutenant with the Scott County Sheriff's Office, announced this week that he intends to run for the Democratic nomination for sheriff. The primary will be June 4th, and the general election will be November 5th. Gibbs of Bettendorf has worked for Scott County Sheriff's Office for 20 years. He previously ran for the Republican nomination for Scott County Sheriff in 2016. Gibbs came in third in that race behind current sheriff, Tim Lane, who went on to win general election too. Voters picked Lane again in 2020. Lane announced his re-election bid January 9th at the Republican Central Committee meeting, according to a Facebook post 
by the Scott County Republicans. Lane wrote in an email Tuesday, <clears throat> he did plan to run for re-election and would send an official announcement in coming days. Candidates running for county office must file their paperwork for the 2024 primary race between March 4th and March 22nd. One other candidate, Chris Lay, announced nearly a year ago his intent to seek the Republican nomination for sheriff. According to Gibbs' works website, as sheriff, he would seek accreditation for the office's law enforcement and correctional services, offer more training opportunities, and increase community engagement. Gibbs served in the Air Force for more than five years as a law enforcement patrolman and working dog handler. He then worked for a private security company at the Library of Congress before joining Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., where he was a police officer until 20, 2003. Gibbs was hired by Scott County in 2004. He was promoted to major in October 2014 by former Sheriff Dennis Conrad and now holds the rank of Lieutenant under Lane. He has served on the emergency service team and as a firearms and implicit bias instructor. Gibbs was born in Davenport and grew up in Coralville. Gibbs and his wife Heather have two children and he serves on the board of directors for Centra Credit Union. Here's a, another short article on the local opinion page, not opinion, excuse me, the local news page. Potential ice jam leads to warnings. Minor flooding possible along Rock River. Flood warnings and watches have been issued for minor flooding along Rock River, according to the National Weather Service in Quad Cities. The Rock River near Jocelyn is an, under a flood warning until late Thursday morning due to ice jams. Senior Service Hydrologist Mark Matt Wilson said there was, there was observations in which the river did reach minor flood stage near Jocelyn. Minor flood stage for the Rock River near Jocelyn is 12 feet. According to the NWS flood data map, the river was at 12.2 feet as of about noon, Tuesday, January 30th. Temperature staying above freezing, especially at night, has played a significant role in minor flooding, Wilson said. With temperatures staying above freezing, there is an exceptional chance for the ice to break up and start moving down the river, Wilson said. Ice jams can result in quick localized rises or falls in river levels with no little or no notice. Wilson said ice jams and flooding can be hard to gauge due to how quick things can change. The Rock River at Moline is under a flood watch until further notice. The flood watch also affects portions of Henry and Rock Island zones and Como in Whiteside County. The Rock River at Moline also has a minor flood stage of 12 feet and an action stage of 11 feet, 11 feet. As of Tuesday afternoon, the Rock River at Moline was at 10.2 feet. Wilson said the areas are at a risk of potential ice jam and it will depend on how quickly the ice moves down the river. Anyone who lives along or plans to do anything on Rock River should be careful, keep your head on a swivel, and monitor river levels, Wilson said. The next update from the Weather Service will be issued at 11 a.m. Wednesday. Over the past week, the Quad Cities has had highs above freezing resulting in a majority of snow and ice melting. Temperatures are projected to stay well above normal heading into the weekend. According to the temperature outlook from NWS, 
the region could reach into the low 50s by the weekend. Thursday and Friday have a high of 51 degrees during the day and a low of about 40 overnight. Saturday's high is expected to reach about 54 degrees. Congress targets fraud-plagued program. This is from the National Page. Written for us by Kevin Freaking and Fatima Hussein of the Associated Press. Washington. When IRS command, uh, Commissioner Danny Werfel met privately with senators recently, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee asked for his assessment of a startling report. A whistleblower estimated that 95% of claims now being made by businesses for a COVID-19 pandemic tax break were fraudulent. He looked at his shoes and he basically said, yeah, recalled the lawmaker who posed that question, Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon. The answer explains why Congress is racing to wind down what is known as the Employee Retention Tax Credit. Congress established the program during the pandemic as an incentive for businesses to keep workers on the payroll. Demand for the credit uh, soared as Congress extended the tax break and made it available to more companies. Aggressive marketers dangled the prospect of enormous refunds to business owners if they would just apply. As a result, what was expected to cost the federal government $55 billion has instead ballooned to nearly five times that amount as of July. Meanwhile, new claims are still pouring in into the IRS each week, ensuring a growing, a growing price tag that lawmakers are anxious to cap. Lawmakers across the political spectrum who rarely agree on little else from liberal Senator Elizabeth Warren D. Mass to conservative Senator Ron Johnson R. Wisconsin agree it's time to close down the program. I don't have the exact number, but it's like almost universal fraud in the program. It should be ended, Johnson said. I don't see how anybody could support it. Warren added, the standards were too loose and the oversight was too thin. The Joint Committee on Taxation estimates that winding down the program more quickly and increasing penalties for those companies promoting improper claims would generate about $79 billion over 10 years. Lawmakers aim to use the savings to offset the cost of three business tax breaks and a more generous child tax credit for many low-income families. Households benefiting from the changes in the child credit would see an average tax cut of $680 in the first year, according to an estimate from the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center. The tax credit is $2,000 per child, but only $1,600 is refundable, which makes it available to parents who owe little to nothing in federal income taxes. An agreement reached this month by congressional tax writers would increase the maximum refundable child tax credit to $1,800 for 2023 tax returns, $1,900 for the following year, and $2,000 for 2025 tax returns. Painting Stolen by Mob Finally Returned, written for us by Matthew Brown of the Associated Press. There's a photograph here. Uh, Dr. Francis Wood, 96, admires the John Opie painting, The Schoolmistress, the 
18th century John Opie painting stolen by mobsters in 1969 has been returned more than 50 years later, the FBI Salt Lake City field office announced Friday. An 18th century well, it shows a, a it's a photograph of the painting. I forgot to tell you that um, it's it's the schoolmistress is a lady, older lady in a <clears throat> a, a hat, and uh, she's she's standing next to a little boy who has a book in his hands, and it looks as if he's probably reading it. An 18th century British painting stolen by New Jersey mobsters in 1969 has been returned more than a half century later to the family that bought it for $7,500 during the Great Depression. The 40-inch by 50-inch John Opie painting titled The Schoolmistress is the sister painting of a similar work housed in the Tate Britain Art Gallery in London. Authorities believe the piece was stolen with the help of a former New Jersey lawmaker, then passed among organized crime members for years before it ended up in the southern Utah city of St. George. A Utah man had purchased a house in Florida in 1989 from Joseph Covello Sr., a convicted mobster linked to the Gambino family, and the painting was included in the sale, the FBI said. When the buyer died in 2020, a Utah accounting firm that was seeking to liquidate his property sought an appraisal for the painting, and it was discovered to be likely the stolen piece, the FBI said. The painting, which dates to about 1784, was taken into custody by the agency pending resolution of who owned it and returned on January 11th to Dr. Francis Wood, 96, of Newark, the son of the painting's original owner, Dr. Earl Wood, who bought it during the 1930s, the FBI said. This piece of art, what a history it's had, said FBI Special Agent Gary France, who worked on the case. It traveled all through the UK when it was first painted and owned by quite a few families in the UK. And then it travels overseas to the United States and is sold during the Great Depression and then stolen by the mob and recovered by the FBI decades later. It's quite amazing. Tony winner Cheetah Rivera dies, and before I begin this article, I, there is a picture here of Cheetah Rivera. She is dancing uh, with uh, some other women behind her. She's kicking up her, her leg and big smile on her face, and this is Broadway star Cheetah Rivera, foreground, and the Radio City Music Hall Rockettes rehearse Cole Porter's Can Can in New York on January 21, 1988. Rivera, the dynamic dancer, singer, and actress who garnered 10 Tony nominations, winning twice in a long Broadway career that forged a path for Latina artists, and she died Tuesday. She was 91. Cheetah Rivera, the dynamic dancer, singer, and actress who garnered 10 Tony nominations, winning twice in a long Broadway career that forged a path for Latina artists and shrugged off a near-fatal car accident, died Tuesday. She was 91. Rivera's death was announced by her daughter, Lisa Mordante, who said she died in New York after a brief illness. Rivera 
first gained wide notice in 1957 as Anita in the original production of West Side Story and was still dancing on Broadway with her trademark energy a half century later in 2015's The Visit. I wouldn't know what to do if I wasn't moving or telling a story to you or singing a song, she told the Associated Press then. That's the spirit of my life, and I'm really so lucky to be able to do what I love, even at this time in my life. In August 2009, Rivera was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor the U.S. can give a civilian. Rivera put her hand over her heart and shook her head in wonderment as President Barack Obama presented the medal. In 2013, she was the marshal at the Puerto Rican Day Parade in New York City. Rivera rose from the chorus girl to star, collaborating along the way with many of Broadway's greatest talents, including Jerome Robbins, Leonard Bernstein, Bob Fosse, Gower Champion, Michael Kidd, Harold Prince, Jack Cole, Peter Gennaro, and John Kander, and Fred Ebb. She rebounded from a car accident in 1988 that crushed her right leg and became in indefatigable, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that word very well, star on the road. She was on Broadway in a raucous production of The Mystery of Evan Drood in 2012 and the chilly The Visit in 2014, earning another Best Actress Tony nomination. She can't rehearse except for full out, said playwright Terence McNally in 2005. She can't perform except for full out, no matter what the size of the house. She's going to be there 101% for that audience. She won Tonys for The Rink in 1984 and Kiss of the Spider Woman in 1993. When accepting a Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2018, she said, I wouldn't trade my life in the theater for anything because theater is life. She was nominated for the award seven other times for Bye Bye Birdie, which opened in 1960, Chicago 1975, Bring Back Birdie 1981, Merlin 1983, Jerry's Girls 1985, 9, 2003, and Cheetah Rivera, The Dancer's Life, 2005. Anchorage sets snow record. Written for us by Mark Thiessen of the Associated Press. Anchorage, Alaska. Even by Alaska standards, there's a lot of snow this winter. So much snow has fallen. So far, more than 8.5 feet. That roofs on commercial buildings are collapsing around Anchorage, and officials urge residents to break out their shovels to avoid a similar fate at home. Over the weekend, there was nearly 16 more inches of snowfall, pushing Alaska's largest city past the 100-inch mark earlier than in any other time in its history. The city is well on track to break the all-time record of 134 and a half inches. Now, even winter-savvy Anchorage residents get fed up with the snow-filled streets and sidewalks, constant shoveling, and six days of pandemic-era remote learning. It's already in the record books with this year's snowfall at eight snowiest, with a lot of time left this season. It's miserable, said Tamara Flores, an elementary school teacher, shelling her driveway on Monday as the snow pile towered over her head. It's a pandemic of snow. 
Last year, 107.9 inches fell on Anchorage, making this only the second time the city has had back-to-back years of 100-plus inches of snow since the winters of 1954 and 55 and 55 to 56. This year, the roofs of three commercial structures collapsed under loads of heavy snow. Last year, 16 buildings had roofs collapse with one person killed at a gym. The city last week issued guidance urging people to remove snow from their home roofs. Officials said there were snow loads of more than 30 pounds per square foot. That is a lot of weight, he said. And then Biden says he decided on response to attack. He says he doesn't want war with Iran, but offers no details. Written for us by somebody, it doesn't say, in the Associated Press. Washington. President Joe Biden on Tuesday indicated he decided how to respond after the killing of three American service members Sunday in a drone attack in Jordan that his administration pinned on Iran-backed militia groups, saying he does not want to expand the war in the Middle East, but demurring on specifics. U.S. officials said they are still determining which of several Iran groups was responsible for the first killing of American troops in a wave of attacks against U.S. forces in the region since the Hamas-led October 7th assault on Israel. Biden plans to attend the dignified transfer to mark the fallen troops' return to American soil on Friday. When asked by reporters if he decided on a response, he said he did and indicated he wanted to prevent further escalation. I don't think we need a wider war in the Middle East, Biden said at the White House before departing for a fundraising trip to Florida. That's not what I'm looking for. It was not immediately clear whether Biden meant he decided on a specific retaliatory plan. A U.S. official said the Pentagon is still assessing options to respond to the attack in Jordan. Uh, for the Quad City Times. Philip D. Bynum, Jr., 46, of Sherrod, Illinois, passed away January 29th at home. Arrangements are pending at Trimble Funeral Home and Crematory in Moline. Lorraine J. Hand, 92, of Morrison, Illinois, formerly of Prophetstown, Illinois, passed away Saturday, January 27th. Arrangements are pending at Bosma Gibson Funeral Home in Prophetstown. Lawrence O'Toole, 87, of Grand Mound, Iowa, passed away Sunday, January 28, at home. Arrangements are pending at Schultz Funeral Home in Grand Mound. Nancy Brown, 87, of Rock Island, passed away Monday, January 29, at home. Arrangements are pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline. John Earl Burson, 52, of Orion, Illinois, passed away Monday, January 29th. Arrangements are pending at Whelan Pressey Funeral Home and Crematory, Rock Island. Shirley A. Bosch, 88, formerly of Bettendorf, passed away Thursday, January 25th at Brookdale, Oro Valley in Oro Valley, Arizona. Arrangements are pending at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bettendorf. 
Randall J. Denner, 69, of Eldridge, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, January 30th at home. Arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport. Sharon K. Pope, 81, of Moline, passed away Friday, January 26th at Springfield Memorial Hospital. Arrangements are pending at Esterdale Mortuary and Crematory in Crematory Limited in Moline. Teresa Wright, 61, of Moline, Illinois, passed away Thursday, January 25th at home. Arrangements are pending at Went Funeral Home in Moline. Marlo Jean Perrine, 83, of Moline, Illinois, passed away Monday, January 29th at Unity Point Health, Trinity, Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Esterdal Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline. Karen L. Cricket Redmond, 69, of Geneseo, Illinois, formerly of Cambridge, Illinois, passed away Saturday, January 27th at Mercy Hospital, Iowa City. Arrangements pending at Cambridge Chapel at Stackhouse Moore Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Aaron Rick Stofen, 75, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Saturday, January 27th at Genesis Medical Center, East Campus. Arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport. Kate Swales of Coal Valley, Illinois, passed away Monday, January 29th at Clarissa Cook Hospice. Arrangements are pending at Trimble Funeral Home in Coal Valley. And Donna Erickson, 79, of Moline, Illinois, passed away Wednesday, January 24th at home. Arrangements are pending at Went Funeral Home in Moline. Bettendorf, Darush Dar Vasada Asadi. Bettendorf, Darush Dar Vasada Asadi, 81, of Bettendorf, passed away on January 26th at Trinity Unity Point Health, surrounded by his family and friends. Visitation will be held at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home, 644 River Drive, Bettendorf, from 4 to 7 p.m. on Friday, February 2nd, and 9 to 10 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd. Services will be held at 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd, also at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home, followed by a burial ceremony at Davenport Memorial Park. Memorials may be made to the family in consideration of an educational fund in Darius's name to be established in the future. Darius was born on January 28, 1942, to Hassan Asadi and Sharafat Yaberi in Shiraz, Iran. He studied mechanical engineering and graduated as the top student from Iran University of Science and Technology, IUST, so it was awarded a full scholarship to pursue advanced degrees in the United States. He earned his master's degree in electrical engineering at the University of Iowa. He then attended New York University, graduating with a Ph.D. in metallurgy and materials science. Upon graduation, he returned to Iran and became chairman of the Department of Engineering at IUST. He then became a design engineer for a multiton steel mill being built in Isafan, Iran. At the time of the Iranian Revolution, he immigrated to the United States and became a design engineer from Iowa, Illinois, Gas and Electric. 
that's mid-American energy. He then went to work for Rock Island Arsenal as an engineer for the U.S. Army Weapons and Munitions Division. He retired in 2004 after an exemplary engineering career. During his time at the University of Iowa, he met Walda Gaylord, and they were married on September 6, 1969. Together, they had one son, Armand. As a family, they lived in New York City and Tehran, before settling in Bettendorf in 1978. Dariush became a U.S. citizen in 1983. Family was Dariush's priority. As the oldest of eight children, he was considered head of the Asadi family. He was instrumental in helping some of his um, family immigrate to the U.S., and he often opened his home to relative for brief or long stays. Becoming a grandpa brought him immense, brought him immense joy. Darius's most evident devotion to family was serving as the caregiver to his beloved wife for the final ten years of her life. Darius's hobbies included watching sports, talking politics, volunteering, and entertaining family and friends. He was a member of the Leclerc Lions Club. Upon retirement, he could be found in grabbing lunch, found grabbing lunch on Fridays with his Romeo, retired old men eating out, group. Darius was predeceased by his parents and brother, Charot. He is survived by his wife, Walda, son, Armand, Jennifer, Asadi, grandchildren, Gabriel, Lila, Ariana, Soya. Siblings, um, Cyrus, Cavus, Kurash, Susan, Susan, Mina, uh, so Helia Asadi, and numerous nieces and nephews. Online condolences may be expressed to the family by visiting Darius's obituary at McGinnisChambers.com. Walter R. Damhorse, also of Bettendorf. Walter R. Damhorst, 85, of Bettendorf, passed away Saturday, January 27th, at Clarissa C. Cook Hospice in Bettendorf after a short illness. Per his request, cremation rites will be accorded. The Runch Mortuary is assisting his family. Memorials may be made to the Clarissa C. Cook Hospice House. Wally was born January 12, 1939, in Quincy, Illinois. He was the son of Raymond and Myra Damhorst. He attended St. John's Parochial School and graduated from Quincy, Notre Dame. He enjoyed returning to his hometown to visit with family and longtime friends whenever he could and was an avid Iowa Hawkeyes fan. A longtime car dealer in the QCA, he had many colleagues and friends in the industry. In retirement, Wally enjoyed working for LabCorp in Davenport. Those left to honor his memory include his wife, Pamela, sons Jaffrey uh, and Gordon, and granddaughter Drew Damhorst, all of Iowa City. His parents, son Kelly, and siblings Roger, John, and Joan preceded him in death. A private family gathering and celebration of life will be held at a later date.
Alexander. Daphne Thomas Alexander, 79, of Davenport, passed away peacefully on Saturday, January 27th, at her residence surrounded by her family. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, February 2nd, at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bettendorf. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. until the time of service. Burial will be at Davenport Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to Unity Point Cancer Center or to King's Harvest No-Kill Pet Shelter. Daphne was born on December 15, 1944, in San Diego, California, the daughter of John and Marie Thomas. In 1963, she graduated from Durant High School. She married Lloyd Ray Carlton in October of 1963, but they later divorced. While raising her daughter, she worked at her parents' shop, Thomas's Rock Hobby Supplies. On February 14, 1988, Daphne married David Lynn Alexander. Those left to honor her memory are her daughters, Darcy Beard, Deborah Alley, and Samantha Joe Alexander, grandchildren, Justin Beard, John uh, Lacey Alley, Tony Putt, and Megan Maelstrom, and great-grandchildren, Devin Melton Charbonneau, Shyla and Shailene Beard, and Adeline Kalen and Colby Grace Lawson. She was preceded in death by her parents and husband, David. Online condolences may be shared with Daphne's family at www.mcginnischambers.com. A mass of Christian burial for Kathleen Serrier Koch, 46, of Appleton, Wisconsin, will be 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at St. Anthony Catholic Church in Davenport. The Mass will be live-streamed by visiting www.hmfuneralhome.com. Burial will be in Davenport Memorial Park. Visitation will be held Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. at Halligan McCabe DeVry's Funeral Home with additional visitation at church on Saturday from 9.30 a.m. until time of, until the Mass time. Memorials may be made to the Epilepsy Foundation of the Quad Cities. Kathleen died suddenly January 28th at Ascension Columbia St. Mary's Hospital in Milwaukee. Kathleen Ann Serrier was born on April 1, 1977 in Davenport, a daughter of Philip and Marilyn Serrier. She graduated from Assumption High School in 1995 and Clark College in 1999. Kathleen was united in marriage to Greg N. Cock, Cook, excuse me, on June 28, 2003, at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in Davenport. Kathleen worked at Creighton Barrel as a catalog production artist before moving to Wisconsin, where she went to work for Lucent Health Services. Kathleen had a smile that could light up a room. She had a great love of sun and beach, especially in Hawaii. She adored her dogs, Cleo and Stella, who greeted her in heaven. Kathleen enjoyed biking, hiking, boating, watching movies, as well as cheering on her Chicago Cubs and Bears. Those left to honor her memory are her husband, Greg Appleton, Wisconsin, Father Philip Serrier, siblings David Serrier, all of Davenport, Kevin Serrier, St. Charles, Missouri, and Karen Sint Eldridge, her mother-in-law and father-in-law, Judy and Norman Coke, Cook, Ocala, Florida, a sister-in-law, Carrie Rogers, Plainfield, Illinois, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her mother and maternal and paternal grandparents. May they rest in peace.
Susan Nyleen McCumber, age 77, of Davenport, passed away on Saturday, January 27, at Genesis Medical Center East Campus after a sudden cardiac event. Until that day, she had lived the last 14 years in the beloved family home she and her brothers grew up in. The visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, February 1st, at Halligan McCabe DeVry's Funeral Home in Davenport, where the family will greet friends, loved ones, and anyone lucky enough to have known Sue. The service will be held at 6 p.m. in the same location, immediately following the visitation. Loved ones are welcome to share their favorite Sue story at the service. Graveside services will be held at Mount Calvary Cemetery in Davenport on 1 p.m. on Friday, February 2nd. All are welcome to attend. Sue has asked that in lieu of flowers, donations be made to Empowering Abilities, 3402 Hickory Grove Road, Davenport, Iowa, 52806, uh, https colon slash slash empoweringabilities.org. It's time to go on to the opinion page and letters to the editor. Biden's bad deal on the border, written for us by Cal Thomas. President Biden offered a deal on the border to congressional Republicans that they could refuse. To their credit, they did. The president, speaking from South Carolina, said he would shut down the border right now if Congress passed the proposed bipartisan deal now in front of them. The proposed deal, Biden said, would give me as president the emergency authority to shut down the border till it could get back under control. This deal offer is ridiculous on its face. The administration has refused to enforce immigration for uh, laws that have been in place for years, but now the president said he will selectively enforce a new law. Through the first 17 days in December, border authorities encountered more than 225,000 migrants along the U.S.-Mexican border, marking the highest monthly total recorded since 2000, according to preliminary Homeland Security Statistics, reports uh, CNN. About 50,000 more arrived at official border crossings. There have been more than 96,000 known gotaways at southern border since October 1, 2023, according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, who knows how many have come into the country with fentanyl. Perhaps the most ridiculous suggestion made during what some have rightfully called an invasion came from the mayor of Boston, Mara Healy, who is asking people to open their homes and businesses to the migrants. This is an equivalent to the temporary housing offered to the 7,000 passengers and crew from airplanes forced to land in Newfoundland following the 9-11 terrorist attack. Who in their right mind would take in unbedded migrants? According to the Center for Immigration Studies, there are 11.35 million people living in the U.S. who arrived without documentation. They're still coming. Why wouldn't they, with so much free stuff, await? The political element 
Behind the grand migration is not hard to discern. Democratic megadonor Groke Soros, George Soros, has made six-figure donations through his Democracy PAC II to a group called Texas Majority PAC, whose goal is to turn Texas into a Democratic majority state. The group was formed by people associated with Beto O'Rourke, who failed in three attempts to seek various offices. In a statement, Texas Majority PAC spokesman, uh, spokeswoman Catherine Fisher said the source donations are intended to help the migrants register and turn out voters on a scale never seen before. She couldn't be clearer as to the PAC's intentions and presumably the goals of other enablers of those who broke out laws to get here. Oh, excuse me, broke our laws to get here. It appears Vice President Kamala Harris is in on this deal. She wants the migrants to have a pathway to citizenship. There is no mystery how she and other Democrats expect most of them to vote should they acquire citizenship. If some of them break more laws after becoming U.S. citizens, what then? Would they get pardoned by the current or a future Democratic president? As Ronald Reagan said, a nation that cannot control its borders is not a nation. Reagan signed a bipartisan but flawed immigration bill. This is different, and if it continues, the United States of America will be fundamentally transformed, which former President Barack Obama and current President Joe Biden have said is their goal. Uncontrolled immigration has reached the top of the list of voter concerns ahead of the economy. Voters will decide in November what kind of America they want. When Benjamin Franklin was supposedly asked what kind of country he had given us, he is said to have replied, A republic, if you can keep it. Whether that quote is true or not is not important. The sentiment is correct. We'll soon know if we were able to keep it. President Biden and George Soros have made their intentions clear. And in case you didn't know it, Cal Thomas is a political columnist syndicated by Tribune Content Agency. Here are some letters to the editor. Uh, this first one is written by Nancy McConnell of Bettendorf. Don't dismantle Iowa's area education agencies. I am a retired speech-language pathologist who worked for the Mississippi Bend Area Education Agency for 15 years. During that time, my caseload of students grew from 45 to 80. The needs of my students became more complex, and my AEA continued to endure funding cuts, stretching our services wafer thin. Considering all of that, to hear my governor say that our special education services are on autopilot is inaccurate and, frankly, insulting. I worked with AEA special and gender educators, classroom teachers, paraeducators, and families to ensure the best outcomes for our students. We were not on autopilot. We helped students with vision and mobility issues play at PE with their peers. We gave nonverbal students a voice with communication devices. We helped struggling readers access the curriculum and be successful. We cared passionately about providing the best services for each student's individual need. Districts who will struggle to choose their special education services. There are few private providers throughout the state 
to contact, contract effectively with school districts. Many districts, especially those in rural areas, can't afford these specialized services except through AEA. And to have the Iowa Department of Education in charge instead of local AEA leadership is certain to be less efficient. Think bureaucracy. SSB 3073-HSB542 dismantles innovative, essential, and cost-effective services for uh, excuse me, for our special and general education students. I am willing to forego uh, yet another tax cut to ensure Iowa students get the quality educational services they deserve. How about you? And uh, here's one more to read. Letter writers don't understand gun laws. This is written by John Williams of Atkinson. In response to the letter by Teresa Grant and Holly Appelt, um, I have rarely in my life seen the level of ignorance exhibited in this letter, but I have come to expect it from the anti-gun crowd. I am sure these two ladies are sincere and well-meaning, but they need a bit more education on gun laws in this country. Online gun sales are conducted through and licensed by licensed gun dealers. The guns are shipped to a licensed dealer where it is picked up by its new owner after a background check is passed. Sales at gun shows go through a table dedicated to conducting background checks and using FBI's NICS system. Banning assault weapons would only lead to shooters turning to much deadlier weapons, repeating shotguns loaded with buckshot. At close range, those weapons are infinitely more deadly than any assault weapon. Guns find their way into the hands of criminals through illegal trafficking channels. Really? Look at your sentence again. The, through illegal channels, gun trafficking is already a federal crime. Exactly what are these loopholes that allow convicted stalkers to gain access to guns? Domestic abusers? They are already banned from firearms ownership under federal law. And that article was, or excuse me, that letter was written by John Williams from Atkinson. Republicans embrace shocking amount of corruption. Written for us by Richard Patterson of Moline. Here's a political review of how Republicans began 2024. Three years since the insurrection at the Capitol, 1,240 Trump supporters have been arrested, 880 found guilty, 720 sentenced, and 450 incarcerated. Trump is facing over a dozen civil and criminal court cases for fraud, rape, defamation, racketeering, insurrection, and stealing secret documents. Many Trump allies have been indicted for the election big lie, and conservative media outlets sued. Dominion Systems won a defamation lawsuit against Fox News for $787 billion, excuse me, million dollars. Trump argues in appellate court that every president has full immunity from all criminal and civil crimes committed while president, even assassination. Trump said he hopes the U.S. economy collapses before he is elected president in November 2024. Then 125 Republicans in Congress voted to shut the federal government down, which could trigger a recession. Republicans demonize Biden and Democrats for the crisis at the, at the Mexico border. Multiple states ruled that Trump incited the 
insurrection at the Capitol and is ineligible to hold office based on the 14th Amendment. Then 179 Republicans in Congress signed on to an amicus brief urging SCOTUS to keep Trump on the ballot. Republicans have embraced a shocking amount of corrupt behavior. Vote Democrat. That brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Patty Daniels, and my partner at the microphone has been Pam Rhodes. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>